นโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอรหัตโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะSo here in the monastery, we are just. Well, this morning we closed our week of silent practice retreat. We're still on our winter retreat, but each month we put a week aside to commit to uh, being silent, and uh, in so doing, bring about some increased intensity and. Hoping that that will serve deepening in our practice, and, and from what I've heard from people in the community, it was a useful week. And uh, it's not an easy thing to be doing, and but it's worthwhile. And some of the time is spent dealing with uh, struggles and difficulties, old stuff. Things we haven't looked at before, worries about the future, difficulties, but also uh, possibly for some people, it's uh, it's dealing with increased sensitivity, and what that brings up is how we how do we deal with the beauty of the world. In our Buddhist practice, we we certainly talk a lot about suffering, but no matter how much we try to protect ourselves from being overly obsessed with with beautiful sense objects, uh, uh, the world is sometimes very beautiful. And and what do we do with that? Now, it's, it's throughout history, people in the spiritual life have. Have tended to make a problem out of it. In fact, there was a a young Western monk passed through here some time ago, and and he commented that he couldn't live in this monastery because it was too beautiful. And uh, that left me a bit thoughtful. I uh, I pondered on his comments, and eventually I decided that that was his problem and wasn't our problem, and. I suspect that it is something left over that he's carrying with him about sensuality, uh, something that you don't encounter necessarily in Thailand. Uh, in Thailand, it tends to be quite the opposite. If anything, they have a problem with enjoying life too much, but it does seem to be something in the Judeo-Christian. Culture that we've all been conditioned by, that perceives the senses, the sense objects, the world, nature as somehow threatening, and we want to be careful that we're not bringing that with us into our Buddhist practice, as we, as Westerners, uh, translate this tradition that we've inherited. We're going to be careful that 
the conditioning that we've also inherited, we don't let this distort or pollute uh, the teachings. And so if you read the traditional Buddha scriptures, yes, you'll see, of course, the Buddha did warn against heedlessly dwelling on beautiful sense objects and talked about the danger of it and, and uh, prescribed remedies for, for being obsessed and, and getting caught up and lost in sense objects. But also you'll read that the Buddha and the awakened disciples, the monks and nuns, sometimes would just wax lyrical about the beauty of the places that they had the good fortune to practice in. Mm. Talking about the dappled light and the, and the comfort and the convenience and the quiet and and the appreciation they had of the sensual realm. It wasn't, it didn't carry with it a uh, compulsive judgment about it all being threatening and dangerous. So, so anyway, for this evening's uh, contemplation, I'd like to raise this up and, and invite us all to take a look at how we relate to beauty in the material world. Hmm. Now, the, the Buddha, of course, we're all familiar with the Buddha's talking about, in his very first discourse, the tendencies we have to dwell on the two extremes, indulgence in pleasure and on one hand and denial of of pleasure or indulgence of pain on the other hand. And then he himself realized what he called, referred to as the middle way, a completely different possibility, which wasn't indulgence and wasn't denial. And so presumably all of us here have confidence in this. This makes sense to us. And so we, we trust in this and we orient our lives towards this possibility. We trust that it is possible to awaken, to live in this world with the sense objects of sight, sound, smells, touches and mental impressions, the six senses and the six sense objects. It's possible to live in this world and be undisturbed by that. Yet that's not our experience. We tend to get disturbed. So the question is why do we get disturbed and how do we get disturbed? As I was saying, we, we spend a lot of time looking at our suffering and how we get disturbed and why we get disturbed by suffering. I think it's also useful to consider how and why we get disturbed by beauty. What happens when we encounter beauty? Living in your hut in the forest and one day you'll be walking through the trees and and suddenly the the fragrance that's in the forest when it's freshly rained. What happens when we encounter such pleasure? Mm. Well, in my contemplation on this, the answer lies in something probably many of you will have heard when 
when uh, the monks were first, our monks in our community were first living in London, on Haverstock Hill, Hampstead, opposite a pub. And uh, during evening puja, during meditation, there'd be the sound of the hungry ghosts over the road at their watering hole. So one night when Ajahn Chah was visiting and, and after the meditation, one of the monks had asked Ajahn Chah, how do you deal with it when you're getting disturbed by these noises during meditation? And Ajahn Chah's answer, very interesting, very helpfully, was the noise is not disturbing you, you're disturbing the noise. Mm. Which probably for most of us is a completely different perspective. How often have we been sitting here in Pooja in the evening and our next door neighbour has got his generator going or he's got his motorbike going up and down the road and you think, oh what a pity the neighbour is disturbing our meditation with his noise. Yet from Ajahn Chah's perspective it's actually we're the ones disturbing the noise. His experience was that the heart goes out and follows the sense object and creates a problem. The sense organ, the ear, is not a problem. The sense object, the sound, is not a problem. But when the heart goes out and interferes with the sense object, it creates a problem. And that's not an obligation. That's what the awakened ones tell us. That's what the Buddha tells us. There was another experience, and I remember my very early years living in Wat Banana Chat, and, and uh, it was decided that we were going to build a new meeting hall. The uh, so a busload of, of uh, supporters uh, of Ajahn Chah had come up from Bangkok and came over to visit the Western monks, and, and it was teeming with rain, and and all we had, the only accommodation we had was this uh, elongated grass roof uh, hut with no sides on it. Uh, pretty minimal. And personally, I liked it. I, it was an upgrade on what I'd been living in in, uh, in Mullumbimby in Australia. And uh, I think all of us were, were grateful for what we had there. But when it came to visitors coming or on the uh, observance night when the local villagers would come, it wasn't really suitable. So the supporters gave some offerings and it was an invitation to build a new meeting hall. So this new meeting hall was being constructed and Ajahn Sumato in his kindness uh, let me uh, participate in the construction to some degree. Anyway, on one occasion, one of the other monks, Ajahn Ananda, I think it was, was over at Wapapong and, and was talking with Ajahn Chah and, and he said, oh, there's, uh, what do you think about this uh, young Kiwi monk who getting involved in the building project? Because generally it was the case that you left these things up to the villagers. They would just do the building and we would accept what was offered. And um, on this occasion, yeah, we were having some input and... I was trying to tone down some of the colours and keep the design a little bit more simple. And uh... Anyway, Ajahn Chah's response was, he said, that's fine, no problem. He can get involved so long as he doesn't get drunk on it. That was the expression that he used. So I think this, this gives us a hint 
about how to look at the issue of sensual beauty. It exists. It's just the way our brains are wired. A lizard will probably come out of its cave in the morning and see the sunrise and the way the light falls on the rocks and the leaves and not make anything out of it, just go looking for a baby lizard to eat. Whereas human beings come out and the way our brains are wired, it produces a sense of pleasure, of beauty. There are certain proportions that produce a sense of beauty, of pleasure. And If you come into a, a well-built room, if it's proportioned right, it can produce a sense of pleasure, of ease. If, for instance, a temple is built and the designer or the architect gets too carried away and you come in and you just get knocked over by how beautiful, how stunning it is, well, it's badly designed. But to ignore the design elements completely, that's bad management too. Yeah. If the architect is too involved in his ego, then even minimalism can be ostentatious. It's not a matter of being minimal. What is it a matter of? What makes something beautiful in a way that is helpful? Well, to answer that question, we need to really bring mindfulness to our relationship to sensuality. How do we feel? What happens to the hearts when we see beautiful sights, hear beautiful sounds, taste beautiful flavours, smell beautiful fragrance? what, What happens? Can we stay at home in our hearts and simply see the beauty and feel the pleasure arising? Or does this exuberant outflow take place, as it's called, in traditional Buddhism, the the outflows of the heart, the sensual outflows, the outflows to do with views, the outflows to do with ignorance. Do these outflows get activated or is there peace? Now, for an awakened being, for somebody who's done their work, there's no problem with the beautiful sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches. No problem at all. If there is a problem for us, where does the problem lie? The problem lies in not being able to say no to that outflow, that exuberance, that wildness. Now, we don't realise this. We can start blaming. We can get afraid of the world. We can get afraid of sense objects. Well, to some degree, to some degree, it's suitable to be afraid. But not compulsively, neurotically afraid to the point where we blame all sense objects. Hmm. And we need to be careful about this. So we see where the real responsibility lies. The real responsibility lies for the real responsibility for our struggle lies in the untamed nature of the heart, not in the sense objects. Hmm. So we need to be careful about this. Yes, to recognise it's like, for instance, if you um, you have a, a cut on your hand and you don't protect it, you're vulnerable. You should be afraid of infection. So long as we're ignorant, and the sensitive eye, the sensitive ear, the sensitive nose, the sensitive tongue, 
the senses are subject, we're vulnerable to being drunk, to getting drunk on the sense objects. But that doesn't mean to say we need to overreact and go to the other extreme, which is sometimes what people on the spiritual path do. Go too far in the opposite direction. So recognizing where the work lies and bringing mindfulness to our reaction to sense objects. Like when we're sitting at the meal. Regularly we have wonderful cooks offering us wonderful food. It's very nourishing and often also exceedingly tasty. And you could be meditating and living a quiet life and then come and the senses are assailed by these beautiful fragrance and you're sitting there before the meal and you start salivating. What do you do with that? Or maybe one thing we want to watch out for is the sensation of fear. Fear of being what? Fear of being taken over. Fear of getting lost. That's fair enough. That's okay to be afraid of being taken over, afraid of overwhelm. That's fair enough. But we don't want to believe in it to the degree where we close down and become numb. A lot of meditators do that. It's just too threatening and so they use the meditation to numb out. And sometimes you see them before the meal when really what they should be doing is investigating the reaction, feeling the fear, feeling the worry, feeling the, the interest, feeling the excitement, whatever, in the body, sitting up straight, breathing, being patient, being careful with the reaction. But sometimes you see them bobbing up and down as if they're sleeping and not interested at all. Actually, what's happened is they've probably they've numbed out. That's one reaction. Is to go to the other extreme and and avoid or deny uh, the pleasure that arises in the presence of beauty. So indulging is not it, but denying is also not it. What is it? How do we meet? Beauty. The tendency to judge. I can remember when I got my first camera. I don't know, maybe I was 13 or 14 years old and, and I was very excited and I remember going out photographing toadstools <laughs> because I found toadstools stunningly beautiful, fungus on logs stunningly beautiful. And my mother was not very impressed. And I remember feeling judged by her for my appreciation of beauty. And also, of course, in those days, it was uh, expensive to get photographs printed. And I think she thought I should be using my camera to take photographs of the family or something. Uh, And still now I have my uh, much better camera and... I am aware of the relationship I have to it. It has the potential for capturing beauty, making it mine, 
Now that's an interesting investigation. With something like a camera. Or if you're into poetry, your ability to use words in a beautiful way. Do we have a mindful relationship to the experience of appreciation of beauty, or do we simply indulge and get lost and get intoxicated? Now, with a camera, you, you, I'm sure you've all seen or perhaps you've had the experience of if you've got a, a good camera and you're going around and instead of appreciating the, the place you're at, you're just looking to see what angle you can get on a good photo. Yeah. And we spoil it. Yeah. We can get locked into this mode of the heart energy going out and it's a compulsiveness, a compulsive exuberance. And from the Buddhist perspective, the Buddha wants us to realize this is, a, a, this is a disorder that we suffer from. But we're responsible for this disorder. It's not the sense objects. It's not the sense organs. The eyes are not responsible for making a problem out of beauty. Hmm. So getting interested in it, studying it, and recognizing that we have this work, we have this task of learning to say no in the right way. We can do this. We can do this. And if we don't do this, then it's very difficult to live in this material world without being repressed or indulging. It's very difficult if we don't know how to say no at the right way in the right time, we are almost certainly going to make a problem out of the world. The world is not a problem. The Buddha and the awakened beings all lived in the same world as we do and didn't make a problem out of it, didn't suffer. We suffer because, well, one of the ways of talking about the reason we suffer is because we, we haven't done the work yet. We haven't tamed the compulsive exuberance of the heart. And so when sense objects arise, the heart energy goes out after them and we create a problem, not just the sound of the pretas at their watering hole, but also the beautiful objects. Before I became a monk, I I was uh, living in... Australia, and I'd done my first meditation retreat, and after that retreat, which was a a, uh, a tremendously uh, uh, life-changing experience for me, a tremendously important experience, and I came off that retreat and went back to my little abode of bamboo and canvas and plastic. I was living in the forest of northern New South Wales, and Spent a lot of time doing formal meditation and having a lot of pleasure, a lot of, of joy and appreciating the tremendous beauty of the forest that I was living in. However, when I decided that I wanted to travel, I needed some money, so I went down to Sydney. And I still have a very distinct memory of the falling into hell that took place in Sydney. Now, it's not because of Sydney that I fell to hell, but it was because of the lack of ability to keep control over the sense doors. 
that meditation had made me intensely sensitive. Meditation can do that. And this last week, I assume for some of you, uh, that was the experience, the increased sensitivity, heightened perceptions. But sensitivity is not mindfulness, and it's certainly not wisdom. And living in Sydney, I can remember, I suffered so badly that at one point I made a determination to myself that if ever I was in a position of teaching meditation to anybody, that I would want to find a skillful way of encouraging people to learn to practice sense restraint. Because if we practice meditation without sense restraint, it can hurt really bad. When Ajahn Shah visited uh, America, some of you may have heard that he, uh, he came back to Thailand and was talking about his experience there, in, well, America and then Britain also, and, and how he's saying, well, you know, in Thailand we're always teaching people sila samadhi panya, sila samadhi panya, this is the way, you know, moral restraint, integrity and and concentration and discernment, silas madipanya, and that's, that's the way practice progresses, he says. But with those Westerners, he said, they're not interested. You've got to teach them panya first, and teach them insight first, teach them how to exercise their discernment and to see clearly, and then they become more concentrated, and then they start to appreciate the place of sila or integrity. And Well, that might appeal to us, it might sound very good, but something else Ajahn Chah also said was when he heard about the way Dhamma was being taught in the West, his observation was that because it was being taught without the emphasis on sila, uh, without the emphasis on sense restraint, his observation was, he said, it's like sending people out to sea in a leaky boat. Hmm. That if we intensify the heart and mind, if, if we concentrate our faculties, and we become more sensitive. Uh, And we don't have a sense of how to rightly restrain ourselves. And remember here, we're not talking about neurotic, compulsive judging, not that sort of restraint, but mindfully restraining, inhibiting the exuberant outflows. If we don't have that skill, then we make ourselves very vulnerable too intense, increase suffering. So if we contemplate along these lines, hopefully we'll come to an appreciation that of the place of sense restraint. It's, it's not easy to talk about because it, it, uh, it regularly leads into the assumption that we're making a judgment around sense objects. No, it doesn't have to be that way. It can be that way, but it doesn't have to be that way. Rather, it's pointing to the dynamic, the science of the path of liberation. If we're going to transform the wild energies of greed, aversion and delusion into something truly beautiful, something truly beneficial for ourselves and others, there are certain laws we have to abide by. There's a science to this. And and one of the laws is if we don't know how to stand guard at the sense doors, then the exuberance will most likely lead us into overwhelm. 
So, having seen this, well then, when we practice the precepts, we're not just restraining ourselves from killing and lying and stealing and so on because it makes us good, but because we want to know we have the ability to say no when we need to say no. And when we practice samadhi, we're not just restraining the mind from following heedless distractions, not just because we're wanting to achieve some sort of magical state of concentration and and pleasure. We're bringing the mind back because we know we need to. We know that if we can't say no to the heedless exuberance of the mind, then we're leaving ourselves open to increased suffering, not freedom from suffering. So restraint with regards to sila, with regard, restraint with regards to samadhi, and restraint with regards to discernment. We don't just restrain ourselves from believing the apparent nature of things because that's something we've been told to do. We restrain the mind from believing in the assumptions about reality because we know if we don't, we're just going to be following our conditioning. We spend our life defined, identified as some conditioned being. And that's not the path liberation. So with this contemplation, we can see the place of sense restraint based on understanding and interest and how to live in this world, this material world that the Buddha and all the realized beings have lived in and appreciate it for what it is, not compulsively making a problem Not just out of suffering, we all know that we make a problem out of suffering, but we also make a problem out of beauty and joy and pleasure. Hmm. So for the awakened beings, beauty is just so. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Ah uh-huh.